bring home to our memory of the fact that we would be lost without Jesus Christ. And so I trust that you have accepted him today uh, as your Lord and Savior. And if you have not, that today will be that day that you will trust Jesus as your Savior. You know, I did that at the age of 20, and I don't regret asking Jesus Christ to save me uh, and save my soul and cleanse me from my sins. And I know that he's given me a peace in this life that will continue. Um, another verse of mine that I claim as a life verse is Isaiah 26, uh, verses 3 and 4. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusts in thee. Trust in the Lord forever, for in Yah the Lord is everlasting strength. And so I trust that you will come to know uh, Christ as your Lord and Savior. All right, so today, uh, following the morning service, we have a business meeting. Aren't you super excited? I know that's one of the highlights of your year. I mean, it rivals the NBA Finals, the World Series, and the Super Bowl. And uh, so as you are catching on by the smiles on your faces and uh, the laughter that you have, uh, you know that sometimes our viewpoint in this can be, well, that's not really something I want to stick around for. Um, but, you know, that's not God's view of a local church. In Romans chapter 12, he exhorts us to be fervent in business. And so today, uh, we're going to look at congregational decision-making, and uh, the big idea is this. Each church uh, is a pastor-led, biblically-guided, and spirit-controlled democracy. And we'll look at different elements of that as we go through, but there are six things that we'll see from the New Testament today that are your responsibility, not the pastor's responsibility or board of pastors. Uh, or a board of deacons responsibility even, but belong exclusively to the congregation. And uh, so we'll look at these. Now, um, many times people approach the form of church government in this way. Well, the New Testament is really not very clear on this. And uh, so we, we really shouldn't expect too much um, or hold to these things, and if we, they constantly want to evolve and to change in the life of our church, then so be it. Um, it's not that important. But once again, this is not God's view of things. So here's the, the importance of the church to God. Uh, eternally purpose. So let's take our Bibles and look up some of these verses uh, quickly, uh, because this is not going to be the main point of the message. But let's go to uh, Ephesians chapter 3. So this is in your New Testament. Uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3, we'll look at verses 10 and 11 to show you that the church is the eternal plan of God. And if he took time to plan the church from eternity, then in life, we need to take time to plan uh, his work and his purposes. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, we read this. To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be made known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So today we can actually teach angels about God's wisdom by participating in the life and the business of Calvary Baptist Church, of one of his local churches. All right, let's look at the next one. Sacrificially purchased by the blood of his son. Let's go over to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. 1 Peter 1, 18. We read this, for as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by traditions from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, was manifest in these last times for you. Now, God in his wisdom and in his counsel with himself 
was able to see, even before he created mankind, the beginning from the end. This is why we call God all-wise. God never got stuck doing advanced calculus when he was trying to figure out the laws of planetary orbits. Um, he didn't get stuck when it came to gravitational forces. Uh, this was just God's wisdom. He spoke the universe into existence. And he knew before that we would choose rebellion to go against him, to go our own way. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That's human nature. We do what we want to do. And we defy this all-wise God. But in love, even with our defiance, he chose Christ to come to this earth, to be born, to live a sinless life, to die on the cross as the sacrifice for your sin and my sin. And this is the eternal plan of God. This is how much thought God put into what we're doing here today. And this is not a cheap thing. This is not a trivial thing in life. The church is the most important organization in human existence today because this is the only place in human humanity where God is working. Now, I'm not saying just Calvary Baptist Church, but in all the Bible-believing churches throughout the world, that's where God is at work today. God doesn't use government to save souls. God doesn't use just the home to save souls. God uses the church. And he uses Christ in, in the preaching of his sacrificial death and the shedding of his blood. You know, religion can get caught up in traditions. What's being referred to here was the Jewish uh, sacrificial system of redemption. When they sinned, or when they would have to give a dedication for the firstborn, uh, they would have to redeem them. They would have to give pieces of silver and gold uh, as the requirement of the Old Testament law. But the Old Testament law could not pay for the forgiveness of their sins. So you're not saved by your generosity when you give in church. Now you should give out of love and gratitude for what God has done for your soul. But never can one purchase salvation. It's just not that way. It's through the precious blood of Christ. He's that sinless person without sin in his life, without blemish or spot. Now, it was powerfully produced by the baptism of the Spirit. Let's go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. So right after uh, the book of Romans, you have 1 Corinthians chapter um, 12 and verse 13. This is what we read. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. This is what we call spirit baptism. At the moment of salvation, when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, he places you into the family of God. And so no matter what generation of the church that you've lived in, um, you're part of that family. And one day, all the generations of the church are going to be gathered in heaven. We call that the church gathered. But he places you into the family of God by baptizing you. Now, baptism is identification with God. And you have become a child of God through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He convicted you of your sin, of God's righteousness, and of a judgment to come if you do not repent, that you will be eternally separated from God. But God was not content with just condemnation. That's why he sent his son to die for you. And so here we see then that God powerfully effected the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost. You read in Acts chapter 2, and they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there was the sound of a rushing mighty wind, and cloven tongues sat upon each of them. It was the promise of the Holy Spirit, and Peter preached that day, and 3,000 people believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And ever since that day, the church has prevailed Nothing can prevail against the church. And so it was powerfully produced on the day of Pentecost. And now it's providentially preserved. Let's go over to Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. I was just making a reference to this verse just a moment ago. But nothing shall prevail against 
uh, the church whatsoever. Uh, Satan cannot defeat the church. So Matthew chapter 26, um, verse 18. And I say unto thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So uh, there's a word play here in verse 18 upon Peter's name, uh, which is uh, Petros, and uh, upon this rock, Petra, I will build my church, upon Peter's foundational confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's the confession of the true church, is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And from that confession moving forward, hell cannot stop the church. Now, it's very interesting. If you ever have a chance to go to Israel, um, this will permanently stay etched in your mind if you ever see it. But uh, have you ever seen Stone Mountain in Atlanta, Georgia, just a kind of a great big huge outcropping of rock that's just out in the middle of the plains of Georgia? Anybody been there? All right. How many of you have ever seen the, the big red rock in Australia that just sticks up in, out in the outback desert? Have you seen that? All right, well, that's something similar to what you have here. Jesus has gone to the northern part of Israel to Caesarea Philippi, which is in distinction to Caesarea that's on the coast. That was called Caesarea Maritime. But Caesarea Philippi was built for Caesar Philip in his honor. And it was a city that was built by the Romans upon the pagan city of, of Dan, where uh, the god of, of Pan was worshipped. And there was a great big, huge mountain, just a stone wall with this cave. And out of the cave comes gushing out of the ground, all of the rock, out of the rock, all of the water that has been filtering down through the mountain. And it comes bursting forth into the Benias River. And the pagans thought that that was the source of the afterlife. And so what they would do was they would sacrifice to the pagan god and they would throw the sacrifice into the spring. And if it sank and went to the bottom of the spring, then they were accepted and they would go to the afterlife. But if their offering came floating up and was pushed out by the force of the water, well, then it wasn't such good news. All right. Um, and so Jesus Christ took his disciples to that spot and was showing how pagan people think of the afterlife. And that rock was in the background. And so he's saying, not a pagan rock, but the truth, the confessional truth that is the rock for the human soul, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He said, the church will be built and nothing will be able to prevail against it. So the devil cannot defeat the church. So the church is always the church advancing. You should expect that when the gospel is preached, that people will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and that people will be added to your local church. All right, now we were talking about congregational decision-making. Very quickly, here are some common forms of church government. Uh, the universal model. Uh, this would be such as the Roman Catholic Church, which has about 12 different layers of uh, church structure over them. Uh, they have deacons, they have pastors, they have priests, uh, they have cardinals and prelates and bishops and, and then the, cardinal, the college of cardinals and then the pope and, and so forth. None of that is found in the New Testament. The national model. Now, how many of you have ever heard of the phrase separation of church and state? Okay, come on. Be a little bit more interactive. Stick your hand up. It'll keep you awake for five more minutes. Okay? But we don't have a national church. This is one of the things that the colonists worked out when America was founded, that there would not be a national church. But England had a national church, Church of England, called the Anglican Church. Germany had a national church. It's the Lutheran Church. And so different nations have national churches where actually it used to be where the, the crown would impose a tax upon the citizens to raise money to provide for the churches. Uh, the national tax in, Ger in Germany has been taken away, so the Lutheran church is only supported today by its people, and well, the, these great big huge cathedrals are empty, and they're actually selling them, 
and they'll take them down stone by stone and ship them uh, even throughout the world. Uh, very sad. Um, but the, the national model of the church, and so we don't have a national church. There was that contemplation. Uh, each one of the colonies had a, quote, church. Virginia was Anglican. Massachusetts was Congregational. Rhode Island was Baptist. Pennsylvania was Quaker. And they all had their churches. But when the United States was formed, they said, okay, look, there's going to be the free exercise of religion. You can practice whatever you want. Uh, Maryland was Catholic and, and so forth. So there was no national church. And so there's been truly freedom uh, of religion here. And so the state doesn't tell the church what to do, and the church doesn't tell the state what to do. And by the way, do you know who is the head of the Church of England? Queen Elizabeth. All right, she gets to appoint all of the church hierarchy. Um, then you have a, 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 the uh, Episcopalian model uh, where you have a regional government. Uh, there's yearly conventions and so forth. You have a Presbyterian model, uh, which really is synods, presbyteries, elders, assemblies, and so forth. That's where government rests. And then you have the congregational model, which we'll look at here in the majority of our me message. Now, who's in charge of a local church? So these are some of the different ideas. Under the presbytery model, uh, you would have elders uh, that would be in charge of this. And so even here in town, if you talk to different pastors, I was out for tea this week with a, a, a local pastor here, and they have this very model where they have a board of elders. And uh, then he explained to me what I already knew, all right, that elders are, are their, their deacons, so to speak. And I was like, oh, you know, well, I knew that. But we were there just for a time of fellowship and uh, just encouraging one another. And then another model is deacon, all right, and deaconess, uh, trustee, and then pastor. So who's in charge of the local church? So these are all the different ideas that are out there. Uh, some have pope, cardinals, uh, so forth. Uh, you have in the cults, you have the seer, all right, the Church of Mormon um, has a seer in Salt Lake City, and he dictates doctrine and so forth. And uh, when it comes to uh, like the Roman Catholic Church, do you know why Catholics used to eat fish on Friday? It's because the Pope owned most of the fisheries, and he wanted to make money. And so that's why they had to eat fish on Friday. And so that was then became law for their church. All right, so let's look here at decisions, decisions requiring congregational declaration. The first one here, can you see that red word, discipline? Doesn't that sound such like a loving word? All right, so let me explain something to you. While you're taking your Bibles, go over to Matthew chapter 18. And we'll look at verses 15 through 17. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between um, thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou shalt gain thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, then in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. All right, so there's this idea of church discipline. Now, we usually think of church discipline as something negative or punitive. But that's not what is really involved here at all. And we'll see an actual example of a first century New Testament church that had to discipline somebody. But discipline comes from uh, the Greek, uh, which means to learn. A disciple is someone who learns. So that helps us understand that discipline is just not punitive. It's formative. So if you take the verse in Timothy that says that the word of God is profitable for doctrine, for instruction, for uh, reproof, for correction, then what you see is before you can ever get to the level of punitive action, 
you have had to achieve formative discipline first. How many of you have ever corrected a child without telling them what they were supposed to do, and you just went ahead and did that and then realized that you made a mistake? Yeah, all right. Some of you are kind of looking at me like, yeah, I've done that, all right? Uh, sometimes managers can do that in the workplace. You get into trouble as a worker for something that you didn't even know, and you're like, wait a minute, I had no clue that I was supposed to do that. Well, someone wasn't communicating. So when we come to church discipline, how are we doing at teaching and learning? You have to teach what is right before you can ever correct what is wrong. So one of the great needs of Calvary Baptist Church is this formative stage of church discipline. We have to teach what is right. And if you bring in new Christians and you disciple them, then you're going to have a lot of what's going on in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. But it'll never reach that fourth stage where you have to put them out of the church because it gets solved during stage number one. For example, I had a new convert one time. She wanted to host a uh, pants suit clothing party for the ladies. And her question was, Pastor, would it be okay to spike the punch? Oh, come on, laugh, right? Have some fun with that. But that's an honest, sincere question from a new believer. Can I put alcohol in the punch? Well, what happens if nobody ever gave her formative instruction and she spiked the punch and all the women in the church show up and end up being a little bit inebriated because they were drinking the punch? All right. Well, then you would have had a big problem on your hands, right? So the pastor, along with one or two other ladies, you know, we, we had a big smile on our face, and she caught from the smile that, yes, that would be wrong to spike the punch, right? And uh, so then we basically walked her through the scriptures and showing her why that's not a good idea, all right? That's not what you want to do. But how would she ever know unless someone taught her? You can't correct that. Um, then we had a, a, another situation where uh, a saved single lady in our church was having uh, what you would say is an illicit relationship with an unbelieving divorcee or almost divorcee in the community. And she was inviting him to church. He did get saved. They, he did get divorced. But during that whole time period, there was uh, unknown to me uh, an individual confrontation, a confrontation of uh, several ladies in the church confronting this sister, and that had been going on for probably six, nine months. Uh, then it came before the deacons as the discipline committee of the church, and the deacons met with them and confronted the issue, and they went to a justice of the peace, and, and they were married uh, he was a believer, and she was a believer, and, and all of that resolved. He was able to get married. They got married at a justice of the peace, and it stopped the fornication. It stopped the sin, and uh, he really began to grow as a Christian, and today he serves the Lord, goes out uh, knocking on doors with his pastor, but that never made it to the whole church because through that whole process, there was formative discipline that was taking place instruction and correction going on at the same time. So when we talk about this, though, let's look here at this and see that this requires the congregational um, approval, not approval, congregational action for church discipline. So it starts out in verse 15 that it's an individual Christian knows that another Christian has sinned, and they go and they get that reconciled one and one. If they don't get it settled, then in 16, verse 16, you take one or two more with you uh, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And that's all that ever needs to know. No one else in the church needs to know. There's no gossip session going on. So it stays within uh, possibly four people here. All right. Now, at that point, what happens in verse 17, if they neglect to hear them, that, that group, 
then you can tell it to the church, all right? And so it comes before the church. So there's three stages, all right? So then the facts are presented to the church, and if they hear the church, everything is good, everything is right. But if they don't listen to the church, then what happens? Well, then the fourth step happens, that this one then is removed from the church. Now let's look at an example of this in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul starts out in this chapter with such wonderful news. Verse 1, it is commonly uh, reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, verse 2, and have not rather mourned that he have done this deed might be taken away from among you. So a father and a son sharing the same woman. The son sharing the father's wife. That's abhorrent. And that's even considered in our day scandalous. But the Corinthian church thought, wow, we're getting known in the city of Corinth. All right, we're getting publicity. Not the kind of publicity that you want. All right. So Paul says, you're not saddened at all. You're puffed up in your pride. You rather should mourn and weep over this sin. And so he says here that even being absent, he's able to judge or discern what should be done in verse 3. In verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together in my spirit with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of bold into sin. So Paul says, put that person out of church membership. And when that happens, then you're out of the protection of God's blessing and you're open to the devil and his destruction. Now, the good news on this particular situation, let's go over to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment, which was inflicted, what? Of many. Now, he goes on to say, so that contrary eyes, you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up over with much over sorrow. Okay? And wherefore, I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. So he came to repentance. He repented of his sin. He stopped that illicit relationship. But then it was kind of this mentality of, all right, am I going to be permanently judged by everybody in this church? Is this the black spot on me for the rest of my life? And so the Apostle Paul said, rather forgive this one. Well, you see, the, the goal of church discipline is to restore. You see, justice can be one of two kinds, retributive, retribution, for something that you've done wrong, or justice can be remunerative, rewarding for what someone has done right. And so here, this young man has repented of his sin. He's done what is right in the sight of the Lord, and then it should be acknowledged by the church. And all forms of discipline are removed from him. He's received back into fellowship as if that whole thing had never happened. Because that's what God does with your sin and with my sin. To remove them as far as um, the east is from the west. All right, And he buries them deeper than the deepest sea. And he remembers them no more. How can an all-knowing, all-wise God forget? Because he chooses to. And we need to choose to forget and to forgive and not hold it against people. But notice the phrase here, inflicted by the many. In 1 Corinthians um, chapter 5, that when the church was gathered together, it must voice its displeasure with the disobedient brother. In Matthew chapter 18, the final arbitrator was the church. Tell it to the church. The whole church gathered together. And so it 
rest with the body of Christ to exercise church discipline. Discipline is formative before it's ever punitive. Are we forming Christ in younger Christians? Because if you have to correct a younger Christian, they need to know that you love them. Love is the Velcro that holds a church together even in a time of crisis, of difficult days. So please, I'm imploring you, invest in younger Christians and be patient with them. You might have to walk them through different levels of church discipline, but it should be formative with the goal of restoring them to God and restoring them to a right fellowship with their fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. That should be the goal. So it's not as nasty as we think. All right, let's move on here. Here's another one. Um, doctrine. Uh, the doctrinal positions of the church require congregational approval. Let's go to Acts 15 quickly, and uh, we'll see here in verses 1 through 3, and then verses 22 and 23, uh, that the apostles did not, from the top down, enforce doctrine upon the church, but rather... Uh, they let the church make sure that what was in the scriptures was actually being taught and enforced. All right, verses 1 through 3. And certain men uh, which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain of those other them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. And being brought on their way by who? Verse 3. The church. They passed through Phenis and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and the elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. Now, there's two churches involved here. The church in uh, Antioch, Syria, Paul and Barnabas have been sent out on a missionary trip, and they're preaching the gospel of salvation by faith apart from works. They come back, they report to the church that the Gentiles are being saved and turning to God through faith and repentance in Christ. And then these Judaizers, they come from the church in Jerusalem, and they trouble the church in Antioch by saying, that's not really the gospel. Those Gentile converts had to go through a Jewish ritual called circumcision. If they were male, that's the removal of the male foreskin, all right, in a very private area. And so that's truly being saved, faith plus your religious works. And so Paul and Barnabas are having no small disputation with them, meaning Paul and Barnabas were hot, and they were earnestly defending the gospel saying, you guys are wrong, you're not preaching the gospel. And so now the church in Antioch is confused. So they send Paul and Barnabas and other brethren from the church in Antioch to the church in Jerusalem to ask, do we have the gospel or do we not? Do we have this right? And so they're not under the authority of the Jerusalem church, but they're asking for the opinion what is really going on here. So, two churches, they're autonomous. One is consulting the other, and the other is going to give the advice. But now notice, let's come down to verses 22 and 23. Then it pleased the apostles and the elders, what's the next phrase? With the whole church. So this is not just the apostles and the elders making up doctrine or enforcing doctrine. The whole church is involved in this. To send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Barsabbas, and Silas, chief men among the brethren. And they wrote letters by them after this manner. The apostles and the elders and the brethren send greeting unto the brethren, which, uh, by the way, the apostles, elders, and who? Brethren. So the church was involved in this decision that was made. Greeting unto the brethren, which are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. For as much as we have heard that certain went out from us, have troubled you with words subverting your soul, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave what? 
no such command. We're sorry that some of our church members came to your church and unsettled your souls. You're not saved by keeping the law of Moses and believing in Jesus. You're saved by faith alone. We didn't send them. We're not doing this. So it seemed good unto us being assembled with what? One accord, the whole church. To send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives from the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent therefore Judas and Silas, who shall also tell you the same things by mouth. And so the whole church was involved in the doctrinal position here. It wasn't just the decree of the apostles. So it was no pope, it's no church seer, it's no church prophet that has a vision and determines what church doctrine is. So this is the whole church has discerned from the scripture what doctrine is and they send a letter to the sister church telling them, no, you've got the gospel right, we're sorry to have troubled you. All right, very quickly, then deacon, all right, selection of deacons. Let's go to Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. And we will be doing this today in our church business meeting, Acts chapter 6. And in those days when the number of the disciples, this is verse 1, multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. So one church has two ethnic groups, um, Greek-educated and Greek-speaking Jewish widows, and then the second group would be Hebrew, 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 Hebrew widows, all right? Ethnically pure, superior, right? And so they were discriminating against the Grecian widows in the daily ministration and taking care of the widow. So then the 12, verse 2, called the multitude of the disciples unto them. Called who together? The multitude of the disciples. So the apostles called the church together and said unto them, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost, and wisdom whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word, and the saying pleased, what? Verse 5. The whole multitude. And they, what's the last noun that this is referring to? The whole multitude. And they, the whole multitude, chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Ghost, and the other six that were there. And so they were then installed into office. And so choose, you choose. So today the church will choose its deacons. Let's move on. Here's another area. By the way, the reason why I'm sharing these six areas is because no board of pastors should ever choose your deacons. No board of pastors, no board of deacons should discipline someone out of the church. This belongs to the congregation. This is requiring congregational assent. This is what we're showing you, the decision-making and the necessity of the whole church, the body of Christ, forming together to do this. All right, dissemination of the gospel. Uh, let's go to Acts chapter 14. We've already been there, but let's look again quickly. Acts 14, verses 26 and 27. And there they sailed to Antioch, from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work which they fulfilled. And they were come, they had gathered the church together, and they rehearsed of all that God had done with them and how they had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. So the church in Antioch had sent out in chapter 13 Paul and Barnabas to do missionary work. Chapter 14, they come back and they give a report. That's why the missionaries that are up on the wall, we have them come, as we had Michelle Demeret here a few weeks ago. Uh, we've had Dave Barba here. We've had uh, the Metzlers here. They come and they give a report because they're accountable to us. They're accountable to you. You're partnering with them. You're using them to share the gospel for you 
in a place you cannot go. So they come back to you to share what great things God is doing, not only with them, but with you and how God is using you. This is how you get to be involved in missions. I think that's exciting. But the church sent them out. The church was gathered together to hear the report. Uh, then you can go back to chapter 13, uh, verses 1 through 3. It tells all of the different uh, teachers that were there. Um, it says here in verse 3 of chapter 13, And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. There were in the church that was in Antioch certain teachers. And so the church sent them out. So it's a blessing. This is another thing that you can pray for for your church. That God would use us to formulate Christ in an individual, raise them up so that we can send them out. Wouldn't that be exciting? That we get to send our own missionaries out? That we get to train our own pastors? That's our job. And so this is our responsibility, the dissemination of the gospel through missionaries. All right, uh, here's a review of the big idea. Each church is to be pastor-led, biblically guided, and spirit-controlled democracy. The Holy Spirit gives us guidance. All right, whoop. Um, now let's look at the disbursement of funds. And so let's uh, just do one reference here. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Let's look at verse 19. 2 Corinthians 8, 19. How many of you are a little warm, sleepy? All right. Mr. Deacon Jeff, would you come up and turn the AC on for folks? They're struggling, and I feel like I'm in a rush because you're falling asleep. All right. Yeah, right? All right. So let's get some AC on, and that'll help us all out. Yes, I did. That's why I called you out by name. <laughs> Just kidding. All right. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Look at verse 19. You're thinking, Pastor, why didn't you catch that earlier? Well, I realized what was happening. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 19. Um, and not only that, but who was also chosen of the churches to travel with us with this grace, which is administered by us to the glory of the same Lord and declaration of your ready mind. Um, so here's what's going on in 2 Corinthians. The church in Corinth came up with a great idea. Our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem are suffering ostracism. They really can't transact business because they're being picked on, because they become Christians. And there's also a great famine that's happening at the same time. Let us, as Gentile Christians, sow appreciation for their sending us the gospel. Let's take a love offering. Get all of our funds together, and then we'll send it to the church that's in Jerusalem to help them. Great idea, but a year later, it had only stayed in the idea stage. So Paul, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, challenges them, look, follow through with your good intent. Make that become a reality. They follow through on it. Now they've got all this money. You need accountability, right? And so the apostles say, we're not touching it. You have to send somebody with us that will be responsible and provide accountability. You choose them out. You do that. So the church chose somebody to be accountable for the finances that would travel with the apostles. And so the congregation was responsible for the financial stewardship, for the financial accountability. That's what we're also going to do today. Make sure that our financial ministry has accountability and stewardship. But that is our responsibility. Uh, some other passages, if you want to look at those that go with that. Let's just go down to verse 23 uh, very quickly. Um, it says, Whether uh, any do inquire of Titus, he is my partner and fellow helper concerning you, 
Our brethren, be inquired of. They are the messengers of the churches and the glory of Christ. So there were a team of people that I should think traveled with them as being responsible for this gift. All right, then the closing one, deciding on your pastor. Let's go to Acts chapter 14 and verse 23. Paul is in his great missionary journeys. Churches are getting started. But who's the pastor? See, that's the question. You got a brand new church. People have just gotten saved. Who's going to be the pastor of that church? Well, that's very interesting. So, in verse 22, the church is exhorted to continue in the faith, uh, even if it's difficult. All right, Christian life's going to have tribulation and trial sometime. And it says, and when they, that's plural, had ordained them elders in every church. So each church had its pastors. And prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. They walked away after the pastor was installed. And then the normative practice is found in 1 Timothy 3, and this we close. All right, let's go over there. So these new churches are getting started, and um, now they need some guidance. What happens if the pastor that was ordained and installed has to move to a different city, and now they have no apostle to pick their next pastor, and the apostles are hundreds or thousands of miles away? What do they do? How do they know who is to be their next pastor? Well, that's why Paul wrote the pastoral letters. He writes to a young pastor by the name of Timothy, and he gives instruction to Timothy. This is what I want you to teach the church, how to choose their leadership, their pastor and their deacons. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 8, you have the office of pastor. This is a true saying, if a man desire the office of bishop, he desires a good work. Well, first of all, you can't force somebody to be the pastor. They've got to want to do it, all right? Then secondly, even though you might have the desire to be a pastor, that doesn't actually mean that you get to be the pastor because there's some checks and balances on this, all right? So number one, you can't force somebody to do it. They've got to want to do it. And then if you do want to do it, then you have to meet some qualifications, and that's what's found in verse 2. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. So he's got to be able to teach and all of these other things. He has to be blameless, and all of the qualifications that go there have to be in place. So he gives them guidance on how to choose their pastor because they'll be doing it from then on. Now, I'm not sure in the history of Calvary Baptist Church uh, what number of pastor I am. I, I know, I think in 70 years, I think 11 or 12, something like that. Um, I know of Pastor Dean, who was pastor before me, then Pastor Cannon, then uh, Pastor Ball, and then was it Pastor uh, Hallberg before that? All right. Anybody remember the pastor before Pastor Hallberg? That's a good question. All right. Okay, thank you, Pam. And that's why the history boards are out there, because all of our history gets fuzzy, right? So how did Calvary Baptist Church know how to proceed when they're without a pastor? Right here. Church didn't stop. It goes on. The church chooses its pastors, chooses its deacons. Now today, by the grace of God, we're not choosing a different pastor. All right because I still want to be a pastor, all right? 
and I believe I'm biblically qualified. So let's just get that out of the way. Uh, but here, all of these decisions require congregational assent and approval. To The congregation has to be involved. So a closing appeal to you. If all of this instruction is recorded in the New Testament, God didn't waste his breath. I would encourage those that are actively attending to approach either myself or one of the deacons and say, we would like to know about membership. Join the church, get involved in the business of the church. So in these six areas, that belongs to you. Uh, that's more formal, but then there are other things that have to take place. There's ministry leaders, um, the multimedia table back there. Matt is moving to Montana, so we're gonna, we've got some volunteers that will be working together, but we need somebody to, to bring leadership to it. That we can just commission you to do that ministry so that we don't have to be involved with it. So there's, what I'm trying to say is this, if you're new and you're attending, there's a place at our table for you, literally at the potluck, <laughs> all right, but then figuratively saying, we want to include you. Matter of fact, we believe that a sovereign God puts the church together as he desires. And, and the beautiful thing about you being a, a guest and our friends is that God has given you a spiritual gift so that you can invest in his kingdom and you can invest in his family right here at Calvary. So it's a beautiful thing. Church membership is not the pay your dues at the country club kind of thing. It's I will commit to Christ to care for his family and I will serve and I will bring glory to him and do what I can to make an increase of the kingdom. So I would make that appeal to you. Then if you are a member, be involved in service. Uh, attend the business meetings. Stay around for them. They're important to Christ. He actually shed his blood 